I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash Comes. Harry, what has the Candyman brought you this time? Well, well I've been back to uh, to Lister's Biscuits, and I'm pleased to say that I've got some Colts Foot Rock, Dan, which is only made in one place in the whole world, and that is uh, Mick Duxbury's birthplace. I'm not going to say where that is, as people should have been paying attention at the last podcast. Um, it's Colts Foot Rock. It's made from the uh, the hoof shaped leaves of the Colts Foot of the Colts Foot plant, um, and it's said to be soothing for sore throats. And if you smoked it, it would cure asthma. I don't know how that would work. I don't, think, I don't think medical science would get behind that idea. And I've also got I also got something intriguingly called Yorkshire mixture. Oh yeah, excellent. I imagine it's flavoured with rhubarb, licorice, and plain speaking. <laughs> have you never had Yorkshire mixture before? I don't think I have, Dan. Oh, Harry. I, I shouldn't say lived. I don't think I have. I should just say no, I haven't. <laughs> and the, I should, to prove that the Yorkshire mixture is working. It's none of your bloody business, Dan, whether I've had it or not. What's it got to do with you? Oh, I shouldn't have had those. I've had two now. Has, has it got any of the giant fish ones? No, I've never, I wasn't offered giant fish. They're a hallmark of you. Of, in your standard quarter of Yorkshire mixture, you should get at least three of the giant fish sweets that can choke you if you're not careful. Can they? If you try and swallow them whole, Dan? Yeah, well, yeah. Chewing is advisable. <laughs> that should have that on the packet. If you're sucking while walking, that that can happen with the fish in the Yorkshire. I believe it can, Dan. I think that's a George. I think there's a George Formby song. (laughs) (laughs) Sucking on my little Yorkshire mixture. So that was one of his hits. And beyond the sucking, any other moments of incandescent excitement lately? Well, yes, I was. I was at a game on. I was at a game on Saturday, and I noticed that in the Northern League, the players. 
shirts are supposed to be numbered from one to eleven. You're not allowed to have squad numbers. But I noticed that a rather larger, a, a sort of wardrobe size midfield player was wearing the number sixteen. Uh, so one of the committee was sitting near me. So I said, uh, "Why is that? Why is that guy wearing number 16? And he did a thing. He put his hand in front of his mouth as if, you know, people might, someone might be lip reading. And he said he couldn't fit into the number six shirt. <laughs> and and so I said, "Oh, oh yeah." And he says, "It's a real problem, you know, because when you actually buy the kits at the start of the season, you just buy them on stereoty- on stereotypes." So you've got your centre back, the, the number four and the number five are a triple XL. The centre forwards double XL, and he said you work down from there. But he said he's a, he's played he's played in the midfield. He said normally that's just an XL in the midfield, but he's a triple XL. He said he said in future if the manager wants to sign a new player, if he said comes to me and says can I get a new winger, I'll say yeah, but he has to be under a forty two inch chest. <laughs> also, I also was thinking. Um, Recalling the 1983-84 season I have been uh, this week because I was remembering in those days I used to work in very sort of smart hotels, posh hotels in London. Um, and I was working at the Ritz during that season. And I'd come on my shift. The shifts were 7 till 3 or 3 till 11. I'd come on my 3, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 till 11 shift. Imagine me walking into reception at the Ritz, Dan, in my, in my morning suit and tails that I wore at work. And then Mr. Chapman, who was the head receptionist, everyone was called Mr. or Miss. Um, we were about, and Mr. Chapman, the head receptionist there, was a very small camp man who supported Chelsea. Well, probably not the stereotypical Chelsea supporter <laughs> of the 80s, I'd have to say. And he was in conversation with this very smart guest who was very in a very nice chalk-striped suit, I remember. And they were talking about Kerry Dixon. And uh, and so I joined in the conversation and I said to the the, the guest, I said, are you, a, are you a regular at Stamford Bridge, sir? And he said, uh, well, you know, I used to have a house near the ground, but now I live in Paris. I don't get here as often and I'm away with work quite a lot. So, But whenever I'm in London, I always go and see them. And then Mr. Chapman said, I'm sorry to say that Mr. Pearson is a Middlesbrough supporter. So then the guest, we started talking about Tony McAndrew. And then the guest said that he had to he had to go off and do something. He said, well, you went. And when he went round the corner, I said to Mr. Chapman, I said, Mr. Chapman, he was very nice. Who is he? And Mr. Chapman said, honestly, Mr. Pearson, that was Mr. Watts from the Rolling Stones. Ah. So there we are. So I've had a, so poor Charlie Watts who died, but I'm possibly the only yeah. person who's had a conversation with him about a journeyman <laughs> midfielder. But if other, but if other, if other podcast listeners have had conversations <laughs> about football with members of seminal 60s rock bands, I think they should write in. Yeah. Any news from that very city of London, Andy? Well, the talking about Charlie Watts, I listened to his Desert Island Discs yesterday, which I hadn't heard before, and he picked a Tony Hancock sketch oh, and said that how he and his wife could, could, could more or less memorise it or like could have conversations with each other. They could basically do a whole Tony Hancock series, I think, between them. So I thought there's another reason why he was obviously going to be a, a missed, much missed person. Yeah, well, today um, I may be having an old washing machine taken away while this is going on, actually. This might make an interesting new segment for the podcast, I thought. <laughs> Whereas I have something removed from my flat each time, so my voice gets more echoey as, as more stuff goes. So that all that would be left eventually would be my old football card albums and some tin food. Maybe a couple of ants. You know, the ants are feeling unwell as they've been dipping into the bait station I've left out. Sort of post-apocalyptic landscape, or more so than I than I, I, I normally look at. Somebody asked me actually the day if I can see the new den from where I live, given that I live on the top floor of, floor of a, a block of flats in Birmingham. But I, I can hear it, but I can't actually see it because it's the ground's in a bit of a valley and there's some trees and another block of flats in the way. But I can see anyone who's been to the new den will know what this is. The huge chimney. That's just behind the ground. It's a, a chimney of the waste incineration factory. 
that's just behind it. So um, I often look at that and reflect on where we're going as a species and so on. Um, our weekly newsletter, the, the Howl, I point out last week, the new Puma shirts that worn by Man City and others have dropped the team badge and the design in favour of just the team name. So there's already been players this season who've got confused and they've tried to kiss the badge after scoring and then can't find it. There's a Twitter clip of a Fenerbahce player doing that last week. Save. So, but it, it serves anyone right for being such a, a phony anyway. I think they want to kiss the badge. Also, finally, also other soccer news. Um, Real Madrid, apparently with debts of, of hit 355 million euros, have bid 160 million for Kylian Mbappe and apparently fairly confident of getting. This is the same club who insists they needed the European Super League because they were struggling financially. So how can they afford that? I mean, have they found their money somewhere? I mean, I, I found a 20p piece in the back of a kitchen cupboard yesterday. So I suppose it's just that, but on a bigger scale, isn't it? <laughs> and issue 413 of When Saturday Comes is out very soon and the letters pages are once again full of pleasant tittle-tattle. Which letters did you enjoy in particular, Andy? Yes, uh, well, there's one from James Fakeney, I hope I've pronounced that right, who replies to a previous letter we'd had asking about um, players who shout time when they're playing. And he says, that shout isn't for the benefit for the player of the player who may or may not have time. It's to stop and extract the complaint from the player on the ball. He says, as a majestic utility player for many years, on regular occasions I had a poor first touch which resulted in the ball being hoofed away anywhere in panic. So the embarrassment of hoofing when no one was within 10 feet can be redirected towards teammates only if there's not been no time shout first. So um, so there's that. Um, also a letter from uh, Eddie Hutchinson that replying to a letter about seeing a referee penalising a goalkeeper for holding onto the ball too long. Says that um, he re- was at a game in April, Nap Hill Athletic against Hersham in the... Uh, Surrey County Inter- Intermediate League um, where the home goalkeeper was penalised by an incredibly eccentric but approachable referee whose armour included blowing for half-time after having left the pitch to retrieve a drink from his bag and requesting that players, quote, step inside my office when he decided he wanted to admonish them. <laughs> so he sounds like a character, doesn't he? So watch out for him on, on his rise up the league. <laughs> Do you think he might be irrepressible, Andy? I think I think he hasn't been repressed enough, as I, <laughs> as I so often say. <laughs> and what about you, Harry? The letters page. Um, I, I enjoyed Dave Norman's letter about the about rising sea levels and the, the positive benefits, perhaps, for West Bromwich Albion, whose uh, <laughs> whose ground is, of course, the highest above sea level. He said, perhaps if they just wait long enough, you know, they'll be able to win, they'll be able to win the Champions League because they'll be the only the, the only club literally still afloat. Um, so I enjoyed that. And also Graham Simpson uh, from Birmingham wrote a letter about a column I wrote quite a while ago, I think, about football rattles, um, about a family heirloom family rattle. Uh, he's a Derby fan, and it had previously been an ARP warden's rattle, which immediately makes you think of Mr. Hodges from from Dad's Army, doesn't it? And he said that his grandfather took it to various FA Cup games, and he himself tried to take it with him in the 1960s, but he was only a child, and so he could barely lift it because it was such a heavy item. I think to predict a letter in the next issue of When Saturday Comes, isn't someone like Buxton actually the highest ground, obviously not a league ground, but in, in England, Dan? Buxton is always one of those places that gets the, either the heaviest snow or the first snow, isn't it? They were always getting snow in Buxton. That was a place where one of the, the I think the West Indies were playing there in a cricket match when it was actually they had to come off for snow. You know, it was in about July or something, I think, yeah. So we look forward to talking about that letter next time. And now a plea. Please join us for another live online event, this time Shot, the Art of Football Photography, when I'll be joined by WSC photographers Colin McPherson, Simon Gill and Paul Thompson on September 16th at 7pm. 
This is your chance to hear the stories behind the images as when Saturday Comes photography team talk through their collections. Discover what goes on to get the perfect shot, from choosing where to visit to spotting the best vantage points and what it takes to stand out in the busy world of football photography. Our Patreon subscribers get discounts depending on their tiers, that's T-I-E-R tiers. Please see our Patreon page for details. Otherwise, tickets cost a tenner and can be purchased at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite, that's B-R-I-T-E, dot co, dot UK. Andy, tell us about some of the other contents then in this new issue, 413. Well, we've got the regular match of the month feature. It's Newcastle against West Ham from the opening day by Mark Brophy, who says he feels he's a Newcastle fan himself. Newcastle fans kind of stuck now, really. The takeover that hasn't happened. They've got an unpopular owner who's still there at the uh, at the moment. No new signings and a manager who, yeah, perhaps is doing okay under the circumstances. They've been forecast to be in the relegation, but the whole time Steve Bruce has been there, but hasn't quite happened yet. Um, though, of course, not made a good start this season. Um, we got Mike Bailey on on Kidderminster Harris ending their relationship with their the caterers of sixty years or so called Quality Fair F A Y R E, uh, who made the award winning. Uh, food, including uh, cottage pie, uh, broth and hot pork rolls, became known well-known to fans visiting the ground. The club are in some, have been in some financial trouble, so it could be that this is really just an important way for them to save money, but um, an end of an era nonetheless. And um, got Mark Sanderson on the revival of Subutio. Um, so many people stuck at home. It seems that you know, there's a bit of a board game revival. Subutio, English Subutio Association has had lots of new member clubs joining recently. Now, Marco also refers in passing to there are leagues where people are called soloists. He didn't really have much time to exp- able to expand <laughs> a lot. And I'm going to explain this in the article. But I asked him about this. And these are people who play as both teams, but then mail the results to the league organiser. And he says, Mark says, said to me, apparently... Some just find the, the playing of Subutio alone a therapeutic thing to do, so I suppose you shouldn't quibble. I don't know how that works if you're taking a shot for one team and trying to save it with the opposing goalkeeper as well. I don't know, do you dart? You have to kind of dart around the back of the goal after you've taken your shot, I don't know. Um, but um, maybe because somebody let us know if, if you're a Subutio soloist. <laughs> um, let us know. Um, we've also had a Middlesbrough-related contribution to the regular um, object lessons feature this month by Dave Hearn about how Burrazine Fly Me to the Moon made T-shirts calling for striker Bernie Slavin to play for Scotland. But the time the T-shirts have been made, he'd already played for Ireland. Um, he he <laughs> qualified through a grandfather. <laughs> so someone a year or so later was still flogging them off cheaply, which is where Dave's mum bought one for him. And Dave said the same thing happened with Stephen Pears, goalkeeper. There was Pears for England T-shirts made in 1992 when he was called up to the England squad. Then he got injured and uh, was never picked again, so they, so they weren't didn't get a chance to be used. Mm-hmm. And we've also got an obituary of Gerd Muller by Peter Schimko. Gerd Muller, of course, former Bayern in Germany, struck with the incredible goal-scoring record of 68 goals in 62 international matches, died uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've actually got, I've actually got more on him a bit later in the podcast, so I won't say much more than that at the moment. And then, of course, we've also got Harry's column. Yeah, what's your column about this month, Harry? Well, it's about it's about um, again another trip to a Northern League game where I noticed that the, there's a guy who watches the club over the fence standing on a ladder, which you know when he when he's in, I think he's retired, so he could probably get in for sort of two pound fifty. <laughs> um, but the the secretary said, "Oh, it's not he's not so bad. At least he gives us the ball back." And then he pointed to a there's a paddock next to it with horses in, it, and he said, "Unlike that bugger there," he said. 
And I said, what, he won't give you the ball back? And he said, no, once once the ball boy nipped over to get it, and he must have seen, because when we came in for training on the Tuesday, there were hoof prints all over the penalty areas. And the man had let the horses into their onto the into the football ground and let them gallop around as sort of revenge. So it made me think. There's been quite a lot of complaints about, uh, particularly non-league teams. I think because often they've moved into grounds or they've moved up levels, and so the people who are living next to the ground haven't really expected it. So there was another club in the Northern League who there were lots of complaints to the council from local residents saying their children couldn't play out on a Saturday afternoon in the garden because of all the swearing. Um, there have been complaints about floodlights, disturbing badgers, uh, evil fumes from the generators and all kinds of things. So it's about, you know, whether I'd always thought it'd be nice to live next to a football ground. But the more I thought about it, the more I could see that maybe it wouldn't be. <laughs> you always suspect that people that live around a, a bigger football ground and aren't interested either. It's very rare you walk down those streets and see scarves and flags in the windows as well. No, it? it does all seem fully, is it? Often see the, there's a, there's another ground where you can see the, the bedroom windows. I think at Dunstan, the, the bedroom windows of the houses look out across the ground. And sometimes at night you see people as the game kicks off sort of rather sort of shutting the curtains in quite a kind of angry way. As if to say, no, I don't even want to. You know, literally, I wouldn't. If they were playing in my back garden, I wouldn't open the curtains to watch them. People are literally, literally sending that signal out. I should say on the subject of Sabuti, the soloist. I remember when I was a boy, a friend of mine saying to me, "Did, did you do, do you play Sabuti against yourself?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Does the team you want to win often lose?" <laughs> I thought, oh dear, there's something wrong. There's something. Now I look back, I think there was something psychologically wrong there. <laughs> I did also enjoy the feature on Don Reeby in the magazine as well. It's like the, the, the yes, that's really interesting about his yeah. about his playing career. But as a Middlesbrough fan, of course, he nearly came to Middlesbrough in 1958, and that was just around the time that Bill Shankly was also interviewed for the Middlesbrough job and, and rejected. <laughs> so, like, we managed to miss out. Not it's bad enough that we missed out on Bill Shankly, but now we missed out on Don Reeby as well. Oh dear. Oh well, there you are. Jackpot ticket. Pound a goal. Draw it half time. Five hundred pound prize draw. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges. Hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. Program. Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw at half time. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Crossgate Primrose FC, Peter Fear, Kitmen who got in with the wrong crowd, and it's landed on hotbeds of soccer. What on earth does that bring to mind, Andy? Well, um, there's a variation out of the northeast, of course, is famously a hotbed, which I suspect Harry may have more to say about uh, later. But there's also a variation how the northeast supplied players um, from a club in another region. A lot of the Burnley players who came up through the youth system from the 50s through to the early 70s were from the northeast, not from Lancashire. And they're very successful in the league in 1960 with five northeast players in the, from the youth system in the squad. 
and they finish in the top half of the of the table every year for 12 years from 52 53 onwards but they, they didn't buy a player for seven years in the 60s bought frank casper striker from rotherham 1967 it was the first transfer fee they played that whole time the the captain of the league title winning team brian miller was at least from burnley but all these northeast players a lot of them were, were scouted through uh, picked through this guy called jack hickson who's their scout in the northeast who later fell out with the club uh, which kind of coincided a bit with their decline really in the 70s because he went on to work with other clubs including southampton where he spotted uh, the sheet metal workers son um, who um, <laughs> went on to have a bit of a career um other hotbeds i think South Yorkshire, possibly a bit underrated as a hotbed relative to the North East. It's always been an area that's produced a lot of footballs, more so than the rest of Yorkshire. Obviously, going back to Sheffield being the first the place where football really developed in the 19th century. There's also, of course, a lack of competition from rugby league compared to the parts of Yorkshire. And West Yorkshire, all the main places developed a rugby league team as well as football. And one of the bigger towns, Wakefield, just has rugby. And of course, a lot of the smaller towns only had. Uh, and South York, in South Yorkshire, rugby league never really took root. The Sheffield clubs only existed since the 1980s. And there was a team in Doncaster, notoriously unsuccessful. But a lot of footballers uh, from South Yorkshire, but not not a place that's really been sort of mythologised particularly, I don't think, really. Certainly not in, term, not in comparison to to the northeast and to Newcastle. Merseyside would be another place that would certainly people would say is a football hotbed in England, but there is one curious thing about it, which has been relatively few, there are relatively few senior level non-league clubs in Merseyside. There's only about 10 currently playing at county league level. And a couple of those are fairly new clubs. AFC Liverpool was set up by Liverpool fans who felt priced out at watching games at Anfield and City of Liverpool, who was set up because Liverpool is the only one of the five boroughs of Merseyside that doesn't have a non-league team. Um, though ironically, they're currently ground share outside Liverpool and, t- and completely, in fact, in Ellesmere Port, which is in Cheshire. Newcastle and Sunderland have, of course, lots of options for local players to, to at least look at, even, even though, of course, they famously missed a lot because of all the clubs in the Northern League and in the past the Northern Alliance. But with far fewer non-league teams on Merseyside, there's not been much of a tradition, really, of players moving up from those clubs to the, to the big two clubs. Jimmy Case, Liverpool midfielder in the 70s, started out with South Liverpool. As did John Aldridge. So Aldridge then moved to Newport. He only ended up at Liverpool in his late 20s. I think over the years, Merseyside non-league clubs have tended to provide more players for lower division teams in Lancashire. I mean, Accrington have had quite a few, especially since John Coleman is also from Liverpool, became the manager. And I remember Berry having a lot at one stage as well. I think in modern, in recent times, the modern the, the modern football hotbed in England really is, is, is South London or maybe even South East London within the last couple of generations. There are loads of Players from a lot of them from migrant backgrounds from Africa and the Caribbean, like Jaden Sancho, Tammy Abraham, um, Callum Hudson Odoi, due to the popularity of cage football, as it's called, you played on five aside pitches in, in mostly built up areas with this little space of full size pitches. It's a very competitive style of football, emphasis on close control. Loads of scouts and professional clubs who go to watch these leagues. A very similar circumstance in the outer suburbs of Paris, I think, that's produced sort of. Um, Paul Pogba and Angolo Kante and Kylian Mbappe and others as well. I think in terms of the rest of England, another place that's maybe a bit of a hotbed or perhaps not seen as such so much is, is Portsmouth, certainly in relation to the rest of the South Coast. Big working class population because it used to be docks. And there used to be what they called dockers derbies, Portsmouth, Millwall and Grimsby, all who had dockers amongst their travelling support. And I think there was the occasional uh, punch-up. I don't think that's been a particular fi- uh, feature of the fixtures between the clubs for a while. And we get the impression that Portsmouth have missed, missed out on a lot of locally born players in recent times, and certainly compared to Southampton, who famously have had a very good youth system recently. James Ward-Prowse and Alec Oxlade-Chamberlain, for example, are both born in Portsmouth, but started with, with Southampton. And um, I think maybe a, a, on a smaller scale, Yeovil, a bit of an outlier in the southwest, and as a non-league team, 
always got big crowds before they're in the league. Not necessarily a place that produced a lot of players, but a club with a, a good fan base for their size in the region where the nearest professional clubs in, in the big city, Bristol, um, weren't very successful. And the rugby union in general very popular in that. In the whole of the southwest, all the way from Gloucestershire uh, uh, down to Cornwall, I think maybe rugby union also rugby union being relatively big might be the reason for for what you might call a um, a cold bed for football in England, which I think is uh, Northampton would would fit the the, the the criteria. Quite a big town, just under two hundred thousand people, bigger than Middlesbrough, and in that bigger than various places that became traditional football towns like Blackpool and Preston. But they've only ever had one division, one season in the top division. Most of the rest of the time in the low division. I don't know if it's something to do with the like local industry in Northampton was mostly small workshops like shoes and gloves and things like that, not big factories. They didn't really have a tradition of, never developed a tradition of large numbers of people clocking off on Saturday lunch times to go and see the football. You know, in the way that happened perhaps in the northeast and, and, and Merseyside. The cold bed thing's really interesting, isn't it? I often wonder in that area why Corby didn't do better, given the amount of steel workers and tradition like that there. And, Glaswegians and all the rest. I would have said so. Yeah, Corby. There's a lot of big Scottish population. I wonder if a lot yeah. of them are sort of more like exiled, you know, Rangers fans, perhaps, and they don't really <laughs> never really got into identifying with the local club. Yeah. And Harry, hotbeds of soccer. Well, I think you know, Andy's mentioned Jack Hickson there. He was a, actually a railway clerk at the at the Newcastle Central Station as his, his day job, and then uh, scouted by scouted by. I was going to say scouted by night. I don't know what he did. <laughs> probably on Saturdays he had a day off. Probably <laughs> scouted. He scouted by night. That's a time. <laughs> Title of a 1950s film, I'm sure. Anyway, yeah, I mean, one of the places that, that he was obviously quite active with, Mahetnley Hole, um, which has got a population of about 15,000. Burnley's great man, one of Burnley's great managers, the guy who kind of set things up, I suppose, was Harry Potts. Um, he came from Hetnley Hole. Um, Stan Turnant, who was from Gateshead, also very strongly associated with Burnley, he, he said that. Um, Harry Potts didn't look like a football manager at all. He looked more like a dapper middle-aged geography teacher. Jimmy Adamson, he was also manager of Burnley and played for that Burnley team. He came from Ashington, born in the same street as the Charlton brothers. But Jimmy Adamson was a bit dismissive and I think was involved in in sort of ousting Harry Potts from the manager's position. And he, I think he said that Harry Potts... The only advice that he ever gave the players, there was advertising hoardings around the side of the pitch. And he told the wingers, don't cross till you get to the third O in Woolworths. That was, that was apparently his advice. But anyway, Harry Potts um, grew up in the same street as Bob Paisley. Uh, he went on to, to be fairly successful with Liverpool, and they both went to school together in Appleton. Uh, Hetley Hole also produced Ralph Coates, our old friend Brian Pop Robson, uh, oh. Steph Houghton, current captain of the England women's team, uh, um, and also Bobby Cram who won the League Cup with West Bromwich Albion in 1966. He won the Watneys Cup with Colchester in 1971, and he was captain of the Colchester United team, who beat Leeds United in the fifth round of the FA Cup in 71, I think that was. Uh, we had one of the biggest upsets in FA Cup history. And Bobby Cram is also Steve Cram, the runner's uncle. I mean, it's a small world in the northeast. I mean, obviously, Ashington, again, as I mentioned that already, a very, very famous place for for footballers of Jackie Milburn, the Charlton brothers, Jimmy Adamson, I mentioned. There was another Jackie Milburn, a second Jackie Milburn, who was Jackie Milburn's cousin. <laughs> How they kept track of it all, I don't know. He played 400 games for Leeds. There was also Stan Milburn, of course, another of the Milburn clan, played 170 games for Leicester. Cess Irwin's from Ashington, who won the FA Cup with Sunderland. So, yeah, those are the sort of two towns in the northeast. I think the, the term hotbed of soccer, which was a 
which was the title of a famous book by Arthur Appleton from the early 60s. But I think the title was actually given to him by John Arlott. So he's the man responsible for the whole hotbed business. And usually, I think if you look at some countries, it seems like the football footballers, say in Italy, for example, if you look to the, the Italy team that just won the Euros, the, the players are much more evenly spread across the country than they are in England, where they tend to come from little pockets. You know, if you look at the Italians, there are three of the players who are from round Naples, but then there's players from Tuscany, Rome, Sardinia, you know, um, from down in the south in Calabria. And so they seem to be much more sort of spread out around the country. And part of the reason for the whole hotbed thing, maybe touched on Jimmy Adamson when he was manager of Burnley, he did actually complain that he said that at one point, 70% of all Burnley's youth team came from the northeast. But he said it's harder and harder for us to recruit players since other clubs have saturated the region with scouts. So it seemed like it could be like a self-perpetuating thing. If the, if clubs know that there are players produced in that area, they send scouts to find players. The players, the scouts find players, and so therefore the region gets a reputation for producing players, and it goes on. You know, whereas they don't probably send scouts to I don't know. You know, sort of north, you know the North Riding of Yorkshire, particularly. I wouldn't imagine. You know, that there's scouts going around. I don't know Rosedale. And in heartbeat country, you know, I mean, there could be a Lionel Messi out there waiting in Egerton or somewhere like that, but I don't think anyone's really looking for them, are they, you know, or the Yorkshire Dales, you know, I don't suppose there's many scout football scouts there. So I think that's a sort of, that seems to me to be a bit of the thing with the hotbed. Um, I mean, there's a, a sort of funny, and also it seems sometimes there's just one club that has got a very good youth system a smaller club that I mean, like in France at the moment, there's a there's a town in Normandy called Evreux, uh, which has a population of about fifty thousand. But the the little local club there has obviously got a very good youth system, and so that's where Bernard Mendy, who played for PSG and Bolton Wanderers and Hulls, started out. Um, Matthew Bodner, who won the League and Cup double with Lyon in two thousand seven and eight, he started out there. Uh, Joseph Mendes, who played a few games for Reading, as a guy who's playing, who's the centre half for for Leipzig. I think has moved on to Bayern Munich now, and they all co- come from that little town in Normandy. But it seems partly because the youth team there is very, very good. I think Usman Dembele is from there as well. So it seems like that it, that seems to be just this one club that's obviously good at. Um, teaching young players, you know, because most of the, I think now most of the French players come from sort of Ile de France around Paris, don't they? I think that's the biggest concentration mm-hmm. there, I would imagine. In terms of sort of places that don't really produce the number of footballers that they should, maybe Barcelona is worth a look. I noticed I, I, that not many footballers actually come from Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Barcelona attracts many footballers, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to produce very many. In fact, on the Wikipedia page of footballers from Barcelona, there are 269 footballers who've come from Barcelona compared, which has a population of 1.6 million compared to Liverpool 699 and Greater Manchester 958, both of which are probably, well, Liverpool's certainly a third the size of Barcelona and I thought Greater Manchester's probably, maybe it's two thirds the size. So Barcelona needs to up it, need to up their game a bit, I reckon. They're going to need to as well, aren't they, really, if they can't buy anyone? So. Well, exactly. They're, they're in trouble. They haven't thought it through, have they, with their Galactico policy? They should have scouts in the, in the Yorkshire Dales, Dan, yeah. discovering all the, un, the untapped talent that's to be found there and round Gothland. It was interesting, Andy, hearing you mention that new hotbed of football being the cage football and South East yeah. London and all of the rest. Thinking back to the traditional reasons why footballers came about, industry, social class, does make me wonder what reasons behind future hotbeds will be, really. 
Yeah, I mean, well, the places where uh, uh, traditional industries were, would have, like coal mining, for example, tended to have social organisations, didn't they, including sports teams of various kinds. So you get a lot of colliery teams in the northeast and the parts of Yorkshire and, and the East Midlands and so on, and also rugby league um, uh, in West Yorkshire and other places of rugby league strong, and in Cum- the Cumbrian coastal towns. But yeah, I mean, because we don't, we don't really manu- we don't really have manufacturing industry anymore. So I mean, no, the, there aren't no large groups of people apart from the you know call centres. But I don't, I don't know if call centres are going to be you know whistle down a call centre to get a centre forward. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. Another thing that's kind of strange with this hotbed thing is, of course, there are also towns that are known as places specifically for football, but you don't really hear about it in relation to anything else. So West Bromwich, for example, have you, have you ever heard? West Bromwich mentioned in the news except for football. I thought the birthplace of one of our contributors, Taylor Parks. But other than that, I know almost nothing about it other than football. And I also know the fact that its fans are very clear that it's not a Birmingham club, that it's the black country, not Birmingham. And in Germany, I wonder if the same thing applies to Mönchengladbach, actually, a famous football team, particularly in the 70s, but it's not a big town. And it's in a heavily populated region where there are loads of other football clubs in, in much bigger cities. There's also, talking about a, a football abroad, actually, one a, a, place we had an article about WC once years ago so a place a city a region in Ecuador called Esmeraldas in, in northern Ecuador where a large percentage large uh, percentage of the population are black descended from slaves and uh, Ecuadorian clubs in the major cities didn't used to scout for players there really until about 30 years ago but it's since had a huge impact on the national team and the previous Ecuadorian teams hardly contained any black players over the last 20 years when the national sides qualified the World Cup three times, having never done so previously. Often about half the team has been black, mostly from Esmeralda's region, and especially from one small area called La Chota Valley. That's got a population of about 30,000 people, but it provided seven of Ecuador's squad of the 23 for the first World Cup in, in 2002 were all from that one place of 30,000 people. Maybe it's a bit like the French place that, that Harry was referring to earlier in the way. Uh, the other the other odd thing or something that may have changed slightly is, is that private schools seem to be producing quite a lot of players. Now, I noticed that Whitgift School, um, which used to produce quite a lot of rugby players, um, Callum, Callum Hudson-Odoyu, Victor Moses and Bertrand Traore, who plays for Aston Villa, right? they all came from that private school. And I think also there's a player, a young player who's just gone to Bayern Munich as well. Jamal Musiala, he he came from Whitgift School as well, so that's that seems to be quite seems to be a newer thing to me. I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I mean, uh, I suppose Neil Harris, who is Millwall's record goal scorer, he was at he was at school with Frank Lampard at Brentwood School in Essex, which again is a fee paying school. So um, also they were there at the same time as um, Barry Hearn's son Eddie. Mm. Who's strange? He's only got involved in boxing and not in and not in football. I mean, I suppose in the old days, were all the sort of amateurs who came out of you know Winchester and Eton and Harrow, weren't they? But but they only they only ever played as amateurs. They didn't they didn't turn pros. So, I mean, that seems quite an unusual or maybe a newer thing. And the maybe element of it, perhaps, is in some cases, as with Frank Lampard, where um, whose dad was a footballer, that as as players themselves, that when they retire, make quite a lot of money. A lot more players probably send their kids to private schools now so maybe we get more generations of players two or three generations of professional footballs where more of them have been from private schools because uh, you know the families have made more money through football than used to be the case i think also with the private schools too if they offer scholarships to people who are good at sport yeah it gets them a lot of publicity but you know as, as indeed they've just had from this podcast but uh, or from me anyway not from anyone's but but um you know so that may be part of it too i mean i think the, the commonest profession for a foot a professional footballer's 
father to have is professional footballer. Yeah. So I think also that goes back to the hotbed thing. If you grow up in an area where you see becoming a professional footballer as an as a, almost like a career option, that must encourage you to do it. It's a bit like, you know, with, with cricket in the West Indies, people could see that they could, you know, you had all those great cricketers, so people thought that that was an option for them. Whereas, you know, so I think that's another thing with the hotbed, that again, it becomes that sort of self-perpetuating cycle where people see see that as a way out, you know, or see that as something they can do because other people around, you know, if you're one of the Milburn family in Nashington, some part of that huge clan, if you don't become a footballer, you're the weirdo, aren't you? So also, I suppose, I mean, private school, school playing fields and schools are losing facilities all the time, aren't they, for sports? And because yeah. private schools don't, and private schools own quite a lot of land, very often also through their controversial charitable status. Um, so if you're at a private school, you can have every opportunity to, to play sport and to develop a sport, school playing fields in a way that a lot of kids from state schools don't have these days. Well, I think that's, that's absolutely true. Because, I mean, you see that with the makeup of the England cricket team where... You know, it was it was a, in the nineteen thirties and forties and fifties, sixties. It was a much more mix, a much bigger social mix than it is now. You know, that's for sure. There were actually there were there were there were coal miners playing. For, you know, ex coal miners playing for England. Well, there are I think pretty much the, the entire England team now is privately educated. So yeah, and that's just to do with the that's just to do with playing fields. You know, so yeah, so it's a bit. It's a pretty. That's a, that's the way we've come. We've gone from produce uh, coal mine, coal mining, producing footballers to uh, to private schools being the only ones who can afford to have the fields for them to play on. Progress. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Well, I've gone for Dan Macht S. Boom. Then it goes boom by the late Gerd Muller, um, who I mentioned earlier, died recently as a subject of an article in the UDPC. This is from 1969. I think maybe his first single wasn't his last one, though perhaps it should have been. Um, Bayern won the league that year. It was the first of their titles when he, he and the various famous players, friends Beckenbauer and Satmeyer and some were playing for them. There's a photo of him on the cover wearing robes and a crown like a sort of emperor of goals, but looking uncomfortable, I think. Muller, I think, was quite a shy person. He does sound, I think we could say, a bit hesitant on this single, possibly not helped by the, the comedy boom sound in the chorus. It sounds a bit like a, a Benny Hill sound effect. And Harry, what's your choice this time? I've gone for Captain Dread by the Amsterdam reggae band Revelation Time from 1987. It's got a big... I've been put off picking this record because it has a big picture of Rudd Hullet on the cover. Uh, during his great um, dreadlocked, mustachioed, peg-panted, 
baggy shirted glory years. Um, and so I thought he was singing on it, but luckily he isn't. Although probably he was sort of skanking away a bit like a, a bit like the dapper geography teacher um, <laughs> in the background when they were recording. But actually, it's quite it's not a, it's not a bad little tune, I reckon. choice this time by coincidence after that hotbed topic chosen at random a North East entry Ronnie Busker Lambert's going up a Newcastle United song from 1984 when one Kevin Keegan rarely mentioned on this podcast was of course starring for the mags it includes the phrase cock of the north which is just not used enough anymore Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Gary Hutchinson of the Lincoln City website and podcast, The Stacey West. So I started The Stacey West uh, at the tail end of the 2015-2016 season. I was uh, off work at the time, actually, with um, anxiety and I needed to fill my days. Uh, I was filling them on the PlayStation and my partner said to me, why are you wasting your time on that? You could be writing. So I thought, I will. Um, I wrote a little bit about the then manager, Chris Moises. And when I went to the next game, he had seen it and he was quite receptive of it. And I'd written quite a bit before, but from then on, the the site really just developed, uh, developed from there. So started off just by doing kind of the odd article here and there. Uh, And now I like to try and think of it as a a kind of a one-stop shop for Lincoln fans. There's a lot of history articles on there. I've got a lot of great guest writers come on. We cover every single game um, at home and away. Lots of stat articles. Uh, There's even a a podcast and a video channel now as well. So we kind of do a little bit of everything, but we stop short of calling ourselves Lincoln Fan TV because that grates my cheese, I'm afraid. Um, I don't want to be a fan TV channel. Uh, and uh, yeah, from that, a, a book came as well, um, a little bit further back in, in history, so to speak. I was the Lincoln City mascot, uh, Poacher the Imp, so I, I dressed up as a, an imp and went all over the country for 16 years uh, As you know, whilst I was kind of battling this, this anxiety and uh, uh, I stopped short at depression, but maybe so. Um, so I wrote a book about that kind of real interesting uh, juxtaposition of happy jovial figure on the on the pitch and, and not so much off it um called suited and booted which is available on amazon i'll get that in there quickly um yes yeah, so that's really that's really the site and what we do so tell me more about how do you, i mean do you think football and writing about football has has helped then with your anxiety presumably that's something you cover in the book yeah no absolutely 100 percent. and i think it's it's to do with validation and it's to do with 
self-worth. Uh, I, I was in a sales job working for a, a kitchen company, um, quite a famous one, well-known one, which I shall not name. Uh, but it was very high pressure. You know, every sale, you were only ever as good as as the one that you were about to make. Um, so that you know, there was never any kind of resting on your laurels, never any appreciating what you'd done or being appreciated for what you'd done. It was always about the next sale. Uh, and it was really unfulfilling. And I found writing about football therapeutic first of all because it's the only thing I really know about I still couldn't tell you anything about kitchens having managed a, a depot um, but writing about footballs always come naturally all my projects as a, an eight or nine year old in primary school were based around football I remember going to visit uh, local newspaper offices in 1986 uh, a couple of days after my first game and we had to write little articles and inevitably mine was about Lincoln losing 4-1 at home to Hartlepool so it wasn't a great read uh, but there we go. So, yeah, it, it's always kind of been a passion of mine. But I think once it started to get out there and the viewing figures started to go up, it, it was almost like validation. It was like you are doing something that people appreciate. And you get to a point in your life where actually chasing pounds and pence and working all the hours God sends isn't isn't fulfilling. What's fulfilling is knowing that that what you do makes a difference to somebody else. And And even now I'm kind of five or six years into the uh, in, into the site and people will still come up to me at games and say things like yeah oh, I'm a great fan of the site I love reading your stuff or I love listening to the podcast that you and, and Ben who's my co-host do um, thank you very much and that in itself is you know is far better than a bonus in a pay packet at the end of a month absolutely I can't move on from the mascot thing this being when Saturday comes any highlights of that particular were you ever hit by a shot from a football or a purposeful attempt at hitting you when you're in the outfit. <laughs> yeah, Barry Conlon. Barry Conlon, for those who might well, I not remember, him. I think. Yeah, he was at Man City for a while, but he was. Uh, me and him had an ongoing feud that he didn't know about. Um, that he uh, he eventually triumphed in. Uh, but it was, just, I think it was November two thousand and seven or eight, um, and that it was my uh, it was my birthday actually, and I remember coming out of the tunnel. Uh, and if there was something in the way at the end of the tunnel, if it was a football, I'd kick it. If it was a mascot, you'd ruffle the hair. You'd, you know, you did something as you came out of the tunnel. So there was this football just in the way. So I gave it, leathered it up, up the field as much as you can do in, you know, size 26 foam boots. And it turned out that it was the football that Barry Conlon uh, was training with. So he went and retrieved it uh, and, and smashed it straight in my face. Um, drop kicked it from about, I don't know, five yards. And he split my lip. I'd blood kind of in my mouth uh, I went to confront him at the end of the game so I waited by the tunnel we'd lost 3-1 had we won 3-1 it wouldn't have crossed my mind to do this um, and I remember waiting by the tunnel and kind of shouting at him like oh Conlon look what you've done blah 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 uh, and I realised that was a bad idea when all six foot four of him um, kind of emerged and cast a shadow not just over me but like over the stand behind me and everything it was like Mr Stay Puffed coming towards you so uh yeah, I was actually saved by a defender they had called Joey Hutchinson. So my namesake, I think, stopped me from getting a bit of a, uh, a leather in. Paul Warren did something similar as well, but um, didn't split my lip. And that was my fault because he I could see he was training with the ball. So I asked him to pass me it. Uh, and he did, you know, thinking I'm doing a nice thing for the mascot. And I booted it into the fans and ran away. So I I'd absolutely deserved it from Paul Warren. Moving on to your supporting life then, when and why did you start going to watch the Imps? 
Well, I started going to watch uh, Lincoln in 1986, October the 5th, to be precise. And as I say, I remember it clearly. We lost 4-1 to Hartlepool. It was a Sunday afternoon kickoff. And there was about 2,000 people in Sinsalbank. And it felt to me at the time like all the people in the world. Um, you know, It was actually his punishment. Uh, the day before, my dad had decided it was time to take me to football. I'd got quite into the World Cup, Mexico 86 World Cup. I collected the stickers. I'd had no interest in football before then. I was like seven years old. Uh, and, and I had this real deep desire to be a football fan. And, and my granddad was a Lincoln fan. My dad was a Lincoln fan who had been made to choose a big club so that he wasn't bullied. Uh, so he had also picked Chelsea, but kind of always lent towards Lincoln. Uh, and at the time, we'd been relegated to Division 4 after several years in Division 3. We were on a downer. And um, at the end of my first season, we'd be the first team relegated out of the Football League. And my dad decided that actually supporting Lincoln probably wasn't the best thing for me because I was ginger, pale and weak as well. So I think he thought that I might get a hammer in. Um, so we drove to watch uh, Nottingham Forest and Manchester United on October the 4th. But we took my, my brother, who was younger than me at the time, and, and, and mum, and they were going to go into Nottingham and me and dad were going to go to watch the football. And we drove past Newark Air Museum. My, my brother started crying and kicking off in the car because he wanted to go and see the planes. So we postponed the football. The next day, uh, I was caught swearing as a seven-year-old in the backyard uh, by dad and, and mum decided she didn't want to spend the day with me and dad had already planned to go and watch Lincoln so I was forced to go and watch Lincoln with my dad which you know delighted me but probably not so much my dad and I think when we got tonked 4-1 uh, on an absolutely miserable afternoon it was cold dad thought that you know maybe I'd, I'd give it up and never go again but actually everybody around me was swearing and it was bizarre you know it's like being punished for robbing a bank by being given all the money in the world um, so yeah I, I was pretty much hooked from that season onwards. I watched two other games that season. I remember them both. We beat Swansea City 4-0 and we beat, uh, lost 1-0 to Cardiff City and were relegated at the end of the year. Um, and my first full season, therefore, was was in the Vauxhall Conference. And, you know, it's, it's quite historic. We won the conference. We were the first team to be relegated out of the league, first team to bounce back. It was so many iconic players playing for us. And, you know, when you're when you're a child and the last game of the season, my granddad, my nan, or my cousins, my aunties, my uncles, like, you know, the whole family had gone to watch this game. There was official crowd, 9,000. There was 15,000 in Sinsilbank that day. And I get goosebumps now talking about it. And unfortunately, you know, that was that. If it weren't for a miserable little brother and a, uh, an aeroplane out on the concourse, I would have been a Forest fan. What a story. That is absolutely superb. So you may have hit upon this already with that first season, but what have been the worst of times as a Lincoln supporter? Yeah, do you know what? It's actually hard to say that relegation at the Football League was the worst of times because when you're seven, you don't really get it. You know, I knew Lincoln weren't in the Panini no. sticker album, so I knew we weren't a big club. But yeah, I saw my dad and my granddad cry the, the day we lost to Swansea the final day the season but he didn't really I didn't understand it because the next season Lincoln was still going to be playing there was still going to be fans there I didn't get it and probably the lowest the very lowest point for me was was the next relegation out of the Football League in 2011 so obviously I'd, I'd been the mascot there for 13 years at the time and there was just this awful sense of apathy on that final day. I mean, we, we needed, I think it was three points from the last 11 games of the season to be safe. We beat Southend 2-1 in March and people were talking about a late playoff run. Uh, and two months later, we were relegated out of the Football League. Uh, it was just awful. Uh, we, we were losing every week. I watched us get beat 6-0 at home by Rotherham. I think we were beaten 4-0 at home by Gillingham in that run-in. We couldn't hold on to a lead. I think we were leading at Crewe and Oxford and, and ended up losing those games as well. It, it was 
miserable. And the final day, it was older shot. And remember, it was nil-nil at half time, and we would have stayed up had it remained nil-nil. And and Barnet, I think, were drawing at the same time. Then Barnet went ahead straight after half time, so we knew we had to win. And it was never going to happen. That that team could have played another fifty matches, and we wouldn't have won. And I remember Danny Hilton scoring the penalty for them uh, in the second half, which which put them one nil up. He knew it relegated us, and he's an awful, awful man um, because he kind of ran in front of our fans, celebrated, and sort of you know, pointing, "You're going down." I just thought mm. that's utterly needless. It really is. I've, I've always held a mm. uh, an intense dislike yeah. of him, even more so than Barry Conlon um, for for doing that. So. Yeah, that was definitely the lowest of times. And, and yeah, after that, losing to Carl Shulton in the FA Trophy was pretty miserable. Losing to North Ferriby when they were National League North, again in the FA Trophy, 4-0 at Sinsel Bank, was awful. And just, you know, just looking at the programme ahead of a game against like Salisbury or Worcester. Or, you know, I remember when Solihull Moors came to Sinsel Bank. I'd been utterly convinced for my entire life that they were actually called Solihull Motors. And when you don't even know the name of the team that were turning up, it's disrespectful. I understand that, but you know, it was just one constant low point after that. Conversely, then, what about the best of times? There's been quite a few. I mean, yeah, I have to go back to the Vauxhall Conference in '88 because I understood by that time what what promotion was, and I, you understand when one season you've got two thousand fans, and the next season, yeah, you know, everybody that you know is at the ground. So that was a real high point for me. Um, and I think the 96-97 season, oddly, we didn't finish in the playoffs, but we went on a cup run. We beat Manchester City, who were then a, what is now the championship, but we beat them at Sinsel Bank 4-1. Um, and then we went to Southampton and held them 2-2. They were Premier League side, you know, Letitia. They had the, the Dutch lad, was it Ulrich van Gobbel? Was that his name at the back? Um, it, yeah, it was a good Southampton side. And that was a, a high point. But it was also because it was Britpop, I was 18. Do you know what I mean? It, it just all kind of fitted into place. We had Gareth Ainsworth playing for us, who literally every boy wanted to be in Lincoln and every girl wanted to be with, you know, the long hair, the guitar. He played pool around the local pubs. Um, and then, you know, you, you can't can't say anything against the last five years because the last five years have genuinely been the best five years Lincoln City, I think, have ever had in terms of trophies. I mean, under Danny Cowley, three trophies in three years, unprecedented, two promotions in three years and a playoff place, unprecedented. And then last season under Michael Appleton, you know, a COVID hit club, cut back on finances, going to within one game of Wembley was was amazing as well. Um, it's just such a shame games like Liverpool in the, the Coca-Cola Cup wasn't in front of a full a full Sinsel Bank. I was lucky enough to be there in a box, but but so few fans were. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're on that upward trajectory. It's going to be a challenge this season, but it still feels now like the best of times. And I think when I'm 80 and I'm telling my grandkids, or well, I don't have kids, so telling somebody else's grandkids uh, about Lincoln City, telling anyone who will listen about Lincoln City, um, I'll probably reference this period of time and and we do, we just don't want it to end. Talking of Michael Appleton, then, just how frightened are you of his massive arms? <laughs> I tell you something, right? It's not his massive arms because his massive arms come across in the photographs. You can see him, you know, he's he's stacked, but he's got a death stare. And and I think I've been I've been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times. And do you know what? He's he's an absolutely lovely bloke. And I'm not just saying that because he's got massive arms. And if I said anything else, he'd tear me apart. Uh, he actually is. 
a nice bloke. He's open. He's honest. There's no agenda with Michael. If you get an interview and you ask him a question, you will get an honest answer. And he then trusts you to do with that information what you will. And and there's things I've become privy to that I know I'd know I would never put out. It's it's journalistic integrity, and you want to maintain that um, that level of trust. But he he has that trust in people, and I like that. Uh, but he is a terrifying man, and, and there's no way at all you'd want to cross him. I remember last season or the season before, Steve Evans, um, boo, uh, come into Sinsel Bank, and after the game, you know, he did what Steve Evans does. You know, waddled across the pitch to have a pop at the referee and he went to have a pop at Michael Appleton and it was hilarious uh, because in his post-match interview, Michael said, I put him back in his box and genuinely you could just see, you know, Steve Evans getting smaller and, and nothing's been able to do that. Do you know what I mean? The Cambridge diet, whatever, hasn't been able to do that, but Steve Evans shrunk at that point. Um, and and it's, it's funny, very few managers have touchline clashes with Michael. They've got plenty to say after a game, but Nobody has a great amount to say at the time, which is uh, interesting. Will be interesting when we play Portsmouth this year because obviously Danny and Nicky Cowley like to have their say on the touchline as well. So that's going to be an interesting clash. But I know my money would be on if they were in a the UFC octagon anyway. <laughs> I've spent many months asking people in this slot, what are you looking forward to most about being back in the ground? You've been back. How was it? What was that moment like when you walked up to your seats? See, there you've summed it up because it was the moment you walked back to your seats. Because do you know what? Actually, as soon as the whistle went, it was like you'd never been away. It was like riding a bike. You know, it's still red and white, good, everyone else bad, man in the middle, fatherless, that that kind of situation. But it... I mean, the build-up to the game was was pretty cool. Seeing people who you hadn't seen for a long while, um, seeing people you didn't want to see for a long while, to be fair. Um, but you know, it, that was good. The fan zone was was new. Everything felt kind of new and exciting. And yeah, I was actually one of the lucky ones to get tickets for the Sunderland playoff semi-final. Um, so I'd kind of been back to Sinsel Bank in the sanitised uh, COVID times, which which wasn't football. You know, it, it was nice to be back, but it wasn't. But the moment you, you picked up on there was just that I, I sit in, in the upper uh, level of our, our co-op stand, and just walking up and walking out and just seeing the pitch ready for action. It was just kind of, it just, you know, when I say give you shivers, I don't want to roll out the kind of standard rhetoric. It was just a, wow, this is what I've missed moment. Uh, and then when the players first ran out, and and for me that's always that's always the moment that you feel it. It's like if you go and watch a band, right? Often the best moment of watching a band is when the the pre music stops and you get that first chord of "Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on stage." And you know you kind of think, "Yes, here we go." Uh, and when the fa- when the players came out of the tunnel, I got it. And I, I've only felt like it what well, I can remember once before, and that was away at Wickham the first day we came back in the football league in 2017. That kind of overriding they come out the noise rises and everything just washes over you and it's just you know if you could bottle that I'd be an addict I'd give up my job and all that sort of stuff and I just sit taking that all day long because it's the best feeling in the world Uh, and then pretty much after that it was you know get it forward and all all the stuff around you and you're just back to normality and you know it's great it's great but it's also nice to just remember actually you know, this isn't the norm. This, you know, this didn't happen for 18 months and you should always appreciate it. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. 
please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. 